cold be hand and heart and bone, and cold be sleep under stone, never more to wake on stony bed, never till the sun fails and the moon is dead, in the black wind the stars shall die, and still on gold here let them lie, till the dark lord lifts his hand over dead sea and withered land. He heard behind his head a creaking and scraping sound. Raising himself on one arm, he looked, and saw now in the pale light that they were in a kind of passage which behind them turned a corner. Round the corner, a long arm was groping, walking on its fingers towards Sam, who was lying nearest, and toward the hilt of the sword that lay upon him. At first Frodo felt as if he had indeed been turned into stone by the incantation. Then a wild thought of escape came to him. He wondered if he put on the ring whether the barrel white would miss him, and he might find some way out. He thought of himself running free over the grass, grieving for Merry and Sam and Pippin, but free and alive himself. Gandalf would admit there had been nothing else he could do. But the courage that had been awakened in him was now too strong. He could not leave his friends so easily. The Way Lesser Inklings podcast will pay homage to the great thinkers, writers, and philosophers of the early 20th century known as the Inklings by mining great works of literature to examine the good, the true, and the beautiful in order that both us as host and the listener would be enriched and able to see the beauty of God's creation through the written word. Welcome back to the Way Lesser Inklings podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Josh Rice, and here again is my brother still on probation on intros. Say hi, Jake. Hey. Yeah, that's the last you're going to hear him for a little bit. This is uh, episode nine covering chapter eight, which is called Fog on the Barrow Downs. As always, I'm going to give us a, a quick intro into the narrative and then kick it over to Jake to talk about characters. This one's fairly simple narratively. Again, what happens is the the hobbits, you know, Frodo, Sam, Mary and Pippin leave Tom Bombadil's house. They go across the Barrow Downs. The Barrow Downs are hills that have graves underneath them that have been legend and rumored in the Shire to be guarded by spirits that walk around clinking jewelry and, you know, taking over travelers. They are making their way through. They think they're about out. They see like a, you know, a line that looks like trees on the northern way as they're making their way through the downs. And then a fog sets in as they sit against a stone that's cold. And in this fog, they get lost. Their ponies wander away and a barrel white comes out and has taken Mary Pippin and Sam and then takes Frodo into a grave. And Frodo struggles, fights back, um, chops at a, a hand that's crawling across the floor the, the hand screams and then Frodo remembers that Bombadil had told them about a poem to, to sing out and, and Tom would come and help. And so Frodo recites the poem. Tom Bombadil comes in, takes them out of the grave, uh, banishes the Barrow White, and then they make their way through with Tom to, through the Barrow Downs and end the chapter back at the East Road where they're very cautious about where the black riders are is that kind of comes back into play here. But I think we're going to argue they never left. Um, Jake, it's time for you. And I think this is where we might, we might surprise some people because I think that our list of who the main characters are here is, is something we're going to have to prove. So yeah, without, without further setup, let's kick it there. What are we doing here with characters in this chapter? Yeah. I, I found uh, is, I found that there are really three primary characters uh, in the chapter. And um, interesting as we were pre-gaming that we both had 
really similar approaches. Um, and the third character was sort of a um, one that we were kind of noodling with, but both decided that it, it really was going on. And so, <laughs> yeah. so the first, so, and we'll, we'll save him for last, but um, so I think our first character of, of importance is Frodo. Um, uh, the second is, uh, Tom Bombadil as he comes back and rescues. Um, and I think there's more commentary on him and Mm -hmm. then, yep. And then our last, uh, who is not actually named in the book. We're trying to remember (laughs) probably until the return of the King. Yeah. It's quite a ways. Yeah. As the witch King of Angmar. Um, and we'll, we'll do our unpacking (laughs) later in the episode (laughs) on him. But yeah, yeah. So, um, so starting with Frodo, I, besides the obvious reason of you pointed out, like he's the only Hobbit that does anything in this chapter. Mm-hmm. The rest of them are just kind of walking along. What what makes Frodo really important here? And and as we kind of go, it's probably it's probably a good chance to get into what is the big theme of this chapter. I mean, the narratively, what happens is they get rescued from some evil spirits and find their way back on the trail again. So we're like back to the main adventure at the end of this mm-hmm. chapter off of the side quest or the shortcut and back to the main deal. What what do you think the main thing going on in this chapter is though? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's like, there's kind of this uh, black and white thing of like the opening chapter with this kind of heavenly view. Um, And I'll let you uh, talk about the opening dream here Mm -hmm. in just a minute. Um, and then we, and then we have the opposite view of, um, like a barrel white, which is a deceased spirit. And so there's, which is, um, and there's a, a poem or a song from, from the white that's kind of contrasting death, um, and, and the, the demolition of death. And, and I know we'll get into that a little more of like the, really it's, I think the idea of the power of good, um, and the hope of good and the, the destructive force of, of what is evil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we're going there. I've, I've told friends for a long time, you know, cause everybody, when they kind of first read the Lord of the Rings, they, they ask the obvious question, like what, what's the ring all about? You know, what's, what's the big deal with that? And my answer for a long time now has been that the ring really represents uncreation, essentially mm-hmm. that, that there's, good in creation that was good and godly and that the ring was a attempt to take and pervert what was made that was good and dominate it and twist it to its own will and basically turn it into a desolation. And I think this chapter has that theme going on without the ring really ever coming into play, but it's the same kind of power of the ring that's at force. And, you know, to start with, I think it's something that I've probably glossed over. I think you said you glossed over it this time when you read this chapter. It's a quote that was made very famous because it's famously said by Gandalf in the return of the King in the, in the movie versions where Gandalf, you know, when Monas Tirith is Tirith is being invaded and it looks like they're surely going to die that Pippin says it's all over. And Gandalf quotes this line and it's from a dream that Frodo has in the first paragraph, the very first thing in this chapter, it says that, um, Frodo heard a sweet singing running in his mind, a song that seemed to come like a pale light behind a gray rain curtain and growing stronger to turn the veil all to glass and silver until at last it was rolled back and a far green country opened before him under a swift sunrise. 
So Gandalf in, in the in the movie adaptation rightly uses it to talk about a vision of heaven, mm-hmm. but not for the reason that I think Jackson Jackson got onto it. I we talked a lot about singing in the last chapter because Bombadil sings. Yeah. All the time, I think singing is the clear evidence that this this is a vision of heaven that Frodo is having still in Bombadil's house, and so it's one of those things we got to stick in our back pocket to understand this chapter is that this chapter really is about creation, the spiritual world, death, and life, and mm-hmm. and so Frodo is seeing this vision that really kicks off this journey, and what what the vision is is that. Life goes on, that it's eternal, that even if things look hopeless here, there's going to be an eternal life. That is in stark opposition to the worldview that Frodo's enemies are going to have in this chapter. And so I think that's where we're going. And that's that's what it jumped out at me. I, I parked it there because I, I really wondered, like, why? When I first, the first thing I read, I was like, oh, that's that quote. I'd forgotten it was in Barrow Downs. And why, why start this chapter this way? Because this chapter seems really simple on the surface, but I think is has got a lot. Yeah, you have thoughts on that? Uh, really, not a lot to add. And I, I do think that you know the simplicity of the chapter. It, I think this is one of those big time chapters where Tolkien does uh, a lot of show not tell, or gives you breadcrumbs to take you somewhere else, but you mm-hmm. you don't ever get the full way until you know, until there's other, you know, there's some posthumous writings that give us clues. And again, I know we'll unpack more of that later, mm-hmm. but I think it's the, the, the depth of his writing to say like, and we've talked about this, I think in every chapter where there's a, there's a clear narrative arc that in many cases is pretty straightforward, but he gives you, and just like life, there's so many encounters along the way and, and we're constantly grappling with these themes. And, and so they're just, they're so tightly interwoven that it is easy for us to miss them when mm-hmm. we're reading. And it's part of the reason why we want to do this project in the first place. So we don't miss them. Right. Yeah. So, you know, we'll, we'll deal with Frodo here and we'll, we'll probably come back to him slightly. I, I imagine that most of our time is going to be spent talking about Tom Bombadil and the witch King of Angmar. Mm-hmm. Um, we had, we had talked after the last episode that I think it's, it's our longest one. We went like over an hour. I think you and I both felt like we had to cut it off. We could have gone an hour 45. I don't think we got to everything we wanted to on Tom, but I think a lot of what we probably wanted to get to is good and proper to get into in this chapter, because what Tom, what happens in this chapter is extremely important to what Tom represents in the story. And I think it is because of who he set at odds with. But before before I move on from Frodo, I want to give kind of these themes because Frodo represents almost the uh, the collision of these two forces. Where if Tom represents eternality, the goodness of creation, life, you know he he's done all these things. He's cultivated the garden, you know, he's caught the river daughter, all that stuff. And then yeah. on the other side is the necromancer, kind of the the understudy of Sauron, the Witch King, who is fascinated mm-hmm. with death and with decay and with raising up the dead to to go to his will to do the things that he wants to do he operates through fear and terror where bombadil is singing poetry in his powerful way that juxtaposition with frodo being right in the middle because the 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 enemy wants nothing more than to destroy frodo and turn him into a slave wraith essentially Mm -hmm. or a, a ghost that can do the bidding of sauron 
but Tom is there to protect and preserve. And Frodo in this chapter has that dream, but then immediately he ta- it's it's all about the eternality of Frodo. That that Frodo comes and he talks to Goldberry. In fact, they're walking off, and he says, "Oh, I forgot to say goodbye to Goldberry." And he comes and he tells her goodbye, and she very clearly says, "It's this has been a great meeting, elf friend. I name mm. you elf friend." So. Why elf friend? That's because elves are eternal because elves are all that's good about creation. They were there to be like part of the earth, that sort of mm-hmm. thing. So I think it's don't miss it, it is what I would say about Frodo. And I think I wanted to set the tea for you there to take a little time here and let like let's collect our thoughts and just talk about Frodo a little bit. Cause I think, mm-hmm. I think something needs to be done here talking about Frodo and I know we've yeah. both been on this for a while, so yeah. let her rip. Yeah. I think there's a couple of things that happen. I think you get again, or it's really easy as we go through the story to underestimate the hobbits and Frodo particularly. I mean, and we can't like, and Sauron does it and Saruman does it. Um, Boromir does it, you know, I think, it's it's really easy for us to take them for granted because they're a they're a small statured simple people, and um and I think this chapter um is the last time where they're alone is just the hobbits on the journey and so in in one sense it's it's still at kind of their physically weakest point um as as a band. And, and so as a result of that, like Frodo is the sternest, um, I think most aware, most, um, I think most confident in a, in a way, um, about what the mission is about who they are, you know, and, and, and just having a steady head in a time of immense peril. And so like, I don't want to lose. And I think I just am continually amazed at the character of Frodo at his depth of learning at his ability to converse with the elves to converse with, you know, Goldberry, um, you know, and then, and you know, his, his wherewithal in this situation to get them out of the jam by calling on, on Tom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think we, we've talked often that we love the movies that don't, don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. Love them. I, I, really adore them. And I think so many of the decisions that they made with a really tough adaptation are really great decisions. They, they did a lot of great things. I think the one thing that has always stuck in my craw, it, it's most definitely the worst thing they did in the movies was that they, in a sense, turned Frodo into a damsel in distress instead of the one who was pushing the action and being proactive. Mm-hmm. And it's clear to see that, that Frodo is, pushing the action that Frodo is extremely important. And here's, here would be a hot take for you to decide that the hobbits are the least interesting and not the proactive characters would be to say, make the same mistake in this story that Sauron made, because this whole chapter is set up. This whole thing is set up by the fact that when Gollum went and was taken by Sauron and said Shire and Baggins, Sauron did not know where the Shire was. He had Mm -hmm. been in middle earth for thousands of years and yep. never, never heard of the Shire. And the reason for that is very clear. He didn't care about the Shire. They were of no military importance to him. He doesn't mm-hmm. care at all. He never even becomes an enemy to the Shire. That's Saruman, who is a lesser evil being. 
right? That, that comes after them. And so this whole situation where they're running around and where, where think about it from the time, like the good guys would have been too slow if Sauron had just dealt with and understood the world that he lived in. He never mm-hmm. understands the world that he lives in. He's full of malice and he doesn't care about anything that doesn't in his mind directly give him power. Gandalf right. would have found out too late and the ring rates would have been beaten down the door of Hobbiton, you know, within two weeks of Gollum being imprisoned by Sauron. And so I, I mm-hmm. would urge us to not make that mistake that even though the hobbits are in this chapter, I would argue more than most, they are swept up in forces that are greater than them, but yeah. only one of the hobbits fights back and takes action in this moment. And it's because he was the only one that was really ready for this adventure. The rest of them are going to grow into it, but Frodo was ready and Frodo has yeah. been ready. And I yeah. think that's something that doesn't need to be missed. Yeah. I think like there's, there's definitely a reason that, Frodo is the only one that wakes from the chilling touch of the Barrow White. There, you know, he's the and as a result, he's the one that fights the fear and chops off the hand. And then, mm. and in that moment, like when he has right, because the Barrow White is going to, you know, redouble his effort after the hand is chopped off, and in that moment it's just enough for Frodo to recollect his wits and, and call upon Tom. And again, I think there's a lot to be said for um, the prepared, you know, adventurer here to have his wits about him at at this moment. Cause you know, I, I think like in a, in a time of great stress and, and peril, that's an easy thing to lose. And so mm-hmm. like his, his instincts in a sense are trained to be ready for the mission, to be ready to protect what he's doing and to protect his friends. Yeah. I think we've done him justice. He really is the, the center point and the focal point of this chapter. And the, the forces that he gets swept up in really are life and death. It's in, Frodo in this story, very tragically, as it goes along, he's going to bring life to everyone in Middle Earth and save them from, you know, the domination of the Dark Lord, while at the same time not being able to enjoy it for himself. And I, I mm-hmm. think that points to the priestly work that's going on with Frodo. And I'll I'll keep throwing that in there because I I really do think it works. Um, yeah. I think here we're going to do something. We talked it with our buddies a few weeks ago, I think. We were talking about the podcast. I think we'd only released one or two episodes at that point. And we were talking about this this podcast. We don't really want it to be a geek out on lore that you have to read 15 posthumous works of Tolkien to get into. There are a lot of podcasts and a lot of YouTube channels that do a good job of that. That's not really what we were. Look, I'm interested in some of that stuff, but that's not really what we were interested in this doing. We're this is really more about examining the beauty of the story, trying to trying to read slow and not miss things, but not really trying to get into a nerd fest in the sense that you have to like these stories. You have to want to like them like an encyclopedia to listen. That's not the goal. Having said that, I think we're going to do something different in this chapter. And I think we, we both independently, we'd not talked about it at all. And and then we talked earlier today and it's like, well, it, I tracked down some history and lore on yeah. this one. And <laughs> you had said you'd done the same thing. And so yeah. I'm going to take that as like this chapter kind of demanded it. And that 
Tolkien, I think, probably wanted us to, because I think he left some breadcrumbs in here that are integral to understanding what he wrote. And so this is where we, I think, take the veer off and talk about the Witch King, a character that we're not going to know by name for a long time. But I think that he's important here and that Tolkien really wanted the reader to to be doing these things. Tolkien is also introducing like the people of Aragorn in this chapter. Like there is a lot yeah. of stuff going on in this chapter in the history. Yeah. But do you do you want to give us the brief thing? Like so to set it up, right? They yeah. when the hobbits get taken uh, into the grave, like they're they're passed out on the floor. Um Mary Pippin and Sam are laying on the floor. There's a long sword just terrifying, right? That's across their mm-hmm. throats and just terrifying stuff. Right. And yeah. they, that they've had jewels put on them. Like they're being dressed yeah. up to be corpses. Yeah. yeah. And when Frodo, you know, s- strikes the hand and Bombadil comes and wakes them all up. Then Pippin basically like, uh, is kind of in a trance and is talking through the dream that he had or what, like the visions he was having while he was unconscious. And he's talking about, you know, the Karn doom and the Mm -hmm. siege and, and the, you know, invasion and all that kind of stuff. And so that takes us off on a tailspin. What is the backdrop and the background of the Barrow Downs? What is going on here? Yeah. So this is a region uh, of Arnor, which is one of the kingdoms of Middle Earth, one of the old kingdoms. This would have been uh, still early in the Third Age. So it's in the current age that we're operating in, but mm, 2,000-ish years before the present, Mm -hmm. um, maybe 25, a long time ago. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, um, And so uh, this the the area of of the Barrow Downs, I believe, was an area called Caradun, which is uh, just a kingdom of Arnor. The mm-hmm. the king of that particular kingdom is a descendant of Isildur, uh, who's mm-hmm. extremely important, and I'm I'm certain we'll we'll talk about that more, yeah. um, probably very soon. Uh, yeah. As as we get into into Strider, um, but the the north of north of the kingdom of Arnor is a a, a place called Karndum which is the capital of a region of Angmar, which is where the witch king um, basically had his primary fortress. And he, uh, he would have been one of the black Numenorians, one that, one that turned to Sauron under the, under the power of one of the nine rings and, and therefore is one of the, one of the ring wraiths. Yeah, one um, of the black riders at this point. One of the point. black riders at this point. Yeah. And so he he launches an attack on uh I want to say yeah, on on this region of Arnor. Again, I keep, I keep wanting to say it's uh Cardal I think it's Cardalan is the Cardalan. Yeah. Is the name. It. Yeah. Um and so he launches an attack and kills he does kill the prince of Cardalan um which is who is who many uh, Tolkien scholars think is the reference here because he's killed by a spear. Uh, mm-hmm. and that's what the vision is. Um, but in, in that assault, we, we have, um, several, we have, uh, nations of elves and men that come to the defense and drive, drive the witch King out and actually drive him out of his fortress and, and completely destroy it. 
Mm-hmm. And so basically the entire land is a wasteland at this point. Um, and Tom makes reference to this in the prior chapter, how there were kingdoms that rose and fell and then there were sheep and then there were no sheep. Like <laughs> this basically it was turned to wild and then it was turned to desolation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, so, and yeah, yeah. So that's everything, everything that the witch king touches he's an emissary of Sauron. Everything that those guys touch turns into desolation. Like that, that's where that story is. And I I think that's, that's the key point. I think you really did a really good job going through that. It's, you know, the, the key points there are that it's, it's an exercise of the witch King's power that, Mm -hmm. but that he was ultimately defeated. And this, you know, interesting connections because the kingdom of Arnor was the people of Numenor, Right. So mm-hmm. it was it was who's going to be like the king's people and that sort of yeah. thing that is they had kingdoms in the north. And so thinking through this, you hear Karn Doom, all the stuff. And then you get into an interesting further bit of writing in Unfinished Tales that mm-hmm. that Tolkien had undoubtedly had in the story and had drafted and that sort of thing. And the times changed and stuff like that. But as he started nailing it down, what had happened was we knew that the Black Riders came into the Shire. They were looking for Frodo. We've been there with them chasing him. And I had always assumed that they just lost him and knew he was going to have to come back to the road at some point because there was no other way, really. He was going to have to go through Bree. And so I figured they would just regroup at Bree. But apparently not. In Tolkien's mind, what had happened is the Witch King, who is the head of the Black Riders, actually came back into the Barrow Downs and raised up these whites, like stirred them up to be active to mm-hmm. try to trap the ring bearer. And this actually happened the day before yep. the hobbits leave Bombadil's house, which when you think of like in Tolkien's mind, the idea of fate and destiny and prophecies and that sort of thing, it rained the day before that kept the hobbits at Tom Bombadil's house one more day, or imagine they in, in Tolkien's story, they would have been going through the Barrow Downs while the Witch King was there, which would have been an absolute disaster. Yep. <laughs> and so that's that's averted. It's lesser servants of the Witch King who was not content that there would be sheep on this land after his kingdom was destroyed. And yep. so therefore brings the whole thing in desolation and just terrifies everyone by having these, you know, terrifying spirits that are, you know, clinking with jewelry and guarding these these great people's tombs. And so it's the, it really is the power of death going on. Yeah. Yeah. And it, yeah. And then I think what it does too, is it, it gives us another insight in, into the enemy here that Mm -hmm. a couple things that, right. The necromancy part, the Sauron is called the necromancer in the Hobbit. And, um, and the, the connection is made for us, uh, I think it was in shadows of the past actually where the connection was made for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so we know, and you know, the, the art of necromancy is, is dabbling with the dead, uh, raising the dead or communing with the dead is essentially what the witchcraft is of necromancy. And so he's, he's going by the title, the necromancer, which would suggest that his entire business is that, mm-hmm. <clears throat> excuse me. Um, and so, so with that, we have, you know, his primary servant. I think what really stood out to me in, the, in, in all that chasing that is that these people that he's raising to be spirits of tools for his, right, for his weaponry, 
were were his enemies. And so there's no honor for these kings of men who were great men, you know, and and have been, I think, probably buried with honor with their possessions, you know, as as a as a memento. Uh, he they care nothing for that. They only see these as um, as weapons for their warfare in the destruction. And I know we'll, we'll continue to talk about that, how Sauron's mm-hmm. mission and the mission of evil is always to uncreate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's about death and domination. And mm-hmm. I think it should be noted that, that in the, in the lore, it's likely that through his necromancy work, the witch king being a Sauron's greatest servant, who would have been doing the same things as his master. And I don't doubt when we get to the return of the king, the mouth of Sauron is probably dabbling in very similar stuff. That the, mm-hmm. the, the witch king, through his necromancy, has probably been making raids of his own people. And then when his defeat comes, he sends them these raids to stand guard over the bones of his enemies. Because I don't get any impression that these Barrow Whites are, they're not the, the bad guys. The, the, the Barrow Whites are spirits that are invading, so to speak, the tombs of of these men. And, they're and you know, the Barrow Whites are taking the jewelry off of, you know, the, the bodies that were buried here and walking around in them, almost as if trying to, trying to put form onto their ethereal self and that sort of thing. And the Black Riders are doing the same thing with their cloaks, because without their cloaks, mm-hmm. they're, they're invisible to people. Because they're they're they don't have form, they're ethereal, that sort of thing, and they're just spirits of fear at that point without the form. They they kind of have a weird connection. Also, interestingly, Glorfindel in the lore is part of this battle, and we're we're gonna see him pretty soon, where he's an immensely powerful elf that has almost one and a half feet in the spirit realm at all times. Mm-hmm. So he sees them really well and that sort of thing. I th- I liked what you said there about it, it truly is in this, this chapter really is the effects of that worldview, the effects of the witch King or Sauron's worldview, which is to just desecrate everything. Mm-hmm. You can't even, even these beautiful jewels are described in this chapter as being cold, you know, pale, mm-hmm. like while they're in these crypts, you know, in the yeah. barrows, there's nothing beautiful about what's going on in there. It's all terrifying. It's disgusting in a way. Yeah. 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 And I don't think, I mean, it's, it's not a, you know, it's not a coincidence that, you know, the land in which he resides is a barren wasteland where there is mm-hmm. no vegetation. There's nothing. And I'm certain we'll, we'll deal with that more, but like, this is a far reaching desolation mm-hmm. that, you know, that we're getting here. Yeah. And, and, you know, in Sauron's case, like every good tyrant in the land of Mordor, he tries to be able to see absolutely everything going on in there. <laughs> you know, he's got this this huge eye that's on the tower looking around at everything in his land. Like, mm-hmm. you better not you better not cross me or you'll be brought in for some questioning, too. And mm-hmm. and we see him. That, that's his interactions with the world. They're, everybody's afraid to get reported. You know, the orcs keep talking about getting reported in. Later on, his his servants rule and are are ruled by just fear, yeah. terror. It's slavery. Yeah. It, it's enthrallment, and that's all the evil really has to offer is slavery and the idea of getting raw power. But it's always a promise of something that's never going to materialize. 
The yeah. orcs, the orcs think they're going to live in peace. They never are. The witch king being so high up in the council, he knew peace was impossible for him because he's an, he's an enslaved spirit to a ring that he was ensnared by with his lust for power. And so what he wants yeah. to do is just ruin everybody else to make them all dead. Like he is, it's really mm-hmm. an ugly thing. And so it's probably yeah. is time to step in and talk about the opposite of all that and really give ourselves time here to take one last really good crack. I think at Tom Bombadil. Yeah. And I think I'm more sure than ever about where we kind of landed in the last episode about what exactly Tom is. Yeah. But what are kind of opening thoughts on Tom for you in the Barrow Downs? Obviously he saves them. That's the simple thing, but I think there's yeah. way more than that. Yeah. It's, I, I think there's a few things that immediately spring to mind. The, the singing is one right out of the gate. And I know we discussed it, but it's like, it's, it's, just really fascinating that he he comes he has a song like he has a song to eliminate the barrel white you know to mm-hmm. and 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 what's what's really interesting is that it's still not a it's not an ugly song you know he says something like you old barrel white get out of here you know <laughs> something that's still you know something that still has joy built into it but but that but that has mastery over the thing, um, you know, again, and he is the master. So o- over these lands. And so there's, there's a part of it where, um, you know, again, time back to the Valar and the, the music where he's, he's deeply ingrained in creation. Um, and, and the music is an, is an integral part of the creation. And so he, because he's the eldest and because he's the master, he knows the songs, of everything in these lands. And so, um, that was something that really stood out for me. I think the other, the other thing, it's just kind of a preponderance. And I think it is something that we see as, um, as the wise continue to steer Frodo, but not do it for him. Cause you read it and you go like, he shows up immediately. And so we don't know, Mm -hmm. you know, we don't know the power of the magic of the song, of if he was tracking them, if he was there, if he just appears, like we're not given that. Um, but he is, he, he obviously is able to, to connect with the song, but it, but you sit there and you go, well, why did he not just come with him in the first place? Mm-hmm. You know? So what's kind of, what's your take on, on that? Like why, why is he not just there leading them out? Cause he does lead them the rest of the way to his line, mm-hmm. to, to the edge. Yeah. I kind of think in some ways that it really does show his power in some ways, Tom is the greater Gildor here. As we saw, you know, a few chapters back that Gildor would just barely give him any answers. You know, he fed them and that sort of thing. But in this case, Tom takes him in his house for a couple of days he, he gives them some more information, but that's because he's secure enough to do it because the Bombadil is a higher being than Gildor. I stand very firmly. I, I believe 100% now that Tom Bombadil is the most powerful character in The Lord of the Rings. I, I do believe that. And I think that his power is so much that he is so secure in who in what his job is and what he's supposed to do that there's no temptation whatsoever for him. He really becomes unchanging in a way, which is kind of a divine type attribute. But I, what what I see here is that Tom is working in the best interest of the world because what he understands is that 
his his power is not to dominate. His power is to take dominion. Because one of the first questions that springs to mind is like, why are these abominations allowed to exist in Tom's country? And, mm-hmm. and I think part of the idea shows that Tom, while having immense power, also he, in a sense, has to be prayed to, right? That that Tom doesn't just go around. He didn't just chop old man Willow down and he doesn't yeah. just go out and clear every barrel white out because Tom's not about destruction. Yeah. He's about cultivation. And so in this, in this chapter, Tom, I think it's ridiculous to think that Tom is like that. This song that Frodo sings is a, is like a beckoning call that like Tom. Oh, well I was doing something. Now I have to go help Frodo because he's singing the song. I don't think it's anything like that. I think it's more like the idea of getting into the music uh, of the way of being in the song. And so Tom is aware and understands, Hey, there, there's someone that's in the song with me and yeah. there's an evil that's trying to mar the song. There's evil that's trying to take the song out. And so Tom appears because Tom is obviously not limited by movement yeah. In, in his lands, he can, you know, it's, he's, I think he probably is quite literally jumping from mountain to mountain in, right. in this area because he's, he's far greater than that, but it doesn't help anyone. You, do, you don't grow in faithfulness. You don't grow in perseverance. You don't grow in strength and dedication and discipline. If you can just rub a magic lamp and the genie just makes you wealthy. That's not the, and we see that all the time. Trust fund, you know, you know, sadly, sadly Tolkien's own family. Yeah. You know, as it's made its way past Christopher by all accounts, it's just a bunch of kind of lazy brutes who have not had to work and and trade off of the name of a much greater man. And I I think it's just the way that you have to, you have to be sanctified. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be sanctified. Yeah. They don't understand what's going on. Yeah, I love I love that you commented on that the juxtaposition of him right like the enemy is always about destruction and Tom really never is mm-hmm. you know even in even in places where it would be warranted like he would none of us would shed a tear for the destruction of old man Willow mm-hmm. but but Tom sees that you know the the wild tree is is a creation that, you know, that has wildness in it and it needs to be tamed. And so, you know, that's, that's a long, that in, in that case, it's a long process and sometimes it's not tamed, but, but that doesn't mean that, that doesn't mean that, that we just go destroy the enemy, Mm -hmm. you know, again, like, and, and that's the thing that the wise play on a lot in this is that there is sanctification and there's always, right. And we've talked about it and I, I think, we're just going to see it repeatedly that other than the dead spirits, anything that's a living creature, the wise mm-hmm. have hope for the creature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It also occurs to me here that the, the devices of the enemy are once again, a pale imitation of the strength of the good because the barrel white himself, he, he says an incantation, he, mm-hmm. what what he says is a spell that that Tolkien calls an incantation but Tom Bombadil very obviously is singing it's not a magic spell per se it, it's kind of like how the elves describe magic is like yeah. it's not if, if going back to our prologue episode it's it's not like 
getting a magic wand out and blowing sparks out the end of it, you know, and shrinking somebody or something. It's, it's basically having a, a heightened understanding of the created order yeah. and using power in harmony with what the creator intended. That's the power of Tom Bombadil. Whereas the, the white being a pale imitation of his greater master, who's a pale imitation of Sauron, who's an imitation of Melkor, you know, right. who was the discordant one in the, in the harmony to start with. He was the ugly singer, yeah. you know, the beautiful angel who was the ugly singer who wanted to strike out his own song that was like banging a shovel while you had beautiful heart music going on. Right. And that's the understanding. It's worse. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's an interesting thing there too, because and one more quick dive into lore, because even in, in the first movement of Melkor's discord, Iluvatar weaves his discord into a harmony mm. and see and, and right and gives him a chance, right? He weaves Melkor's purposeful destruction of the music into something beautiful and and gives him another chance to weave into the story and then and then reveals after that moment Iluvatar reveals to the Vala what is going like what their music has created the the beauty of what they've created and <laughs> and it's not enough for Melkor right mm-hmm. like then he goes and recruits others to create more disharmony Mm-hmm. Because yeah, he, he thinks he, he thinks louder's better. Louder yeah. is stronger. Yeah, <laughs> who cares how right. beautiful it is if mine's more powerful, right? right. And yeah. it's a lie because the good, yeah. the good is slow and faithful and steady. And as we see over and over in the story, it's small things. It's it's in this story. Look at this chapter, right? The whole quest of the ring dies right here. And from the further writing, we know that the witch king is going to come and collect the ring from his servant. If Frodo doesn't do the simple thing of remembering what he'd been told and fighting back, he's the mm-hmm. only hobbit that he says, no, <laughs> you know, he's, he's not going to give in and he fights. And then he realizes I can't fight my way out of this, but old Tom gave me a song and he's the one that felt it. He's the one that understood Bombadil because he's the one that is ready for these serious things. I think that's yeah. what's obvious here. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, so two, two quick jump offs on what you said. First, I'd kind of forgotten until you said that, that there is a moment in this chapter where Frodo is tempted to put on the ring and run away. You know, I think we would believe that the ring would not have hidden him from the white, that mm-hmm. he would have been in the invisible realm. But he, he wouldn't necessarily know that. He just knows that it's an out. And, and he, he courageously and righteously fights that impulse and, and sacrifices him, seemingly sacrifices himself for his friends, um, you know, to, to save them. And, and, and then, you know, and again, then summons, summons Tom. Um, the, the second thing I was going to add to that, I just forgot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so maybe well, that loyalty, right? Well, yeah. To, so for Frodo to give in and to try to put the ring on, in his understanding, his understanding would have been, "I will disappear," and and he even says it. He says Gandalf would admit there would have been nothing else he could do, mm-hmm. and and that's where in this like Tolkien does it so beautifully. It's obvious that that is temptation to evil, 
because yeah. Frodo has been told what the ring is, been told what it does. And what evil does and what sin does is it entices you to try to take the fast, easy, obvious way out against what you know to be the truth of obedience. And right. so if Frodo had put the ring on, what would have happened is he would have surely died. He, mm-hmm. he would have been fully into the spirit world where the wraith, where the white would have been completely aware of his presence. I think there's a weird kind of drifting where they can't, they can't really quite see. They have a hard time with the living, you know, a yeah. hard time seeing it. it. But what it does that brings him back is, is really the main thread of the story so far. And that is that there's no way Frodo could do that to his friends. Mm-hmm. They're they're His, his courage is found because the friendship is really one of the main keys to the story is that friendship is such a powerful force. And I, I got to imagine like, how did, how did those boys that Tolkien was with in the atrocities of world war one, when so many people were dying around you, there was brotherhood and bands of that were laying in those stinking trenches. That's how you passed through the terror and, and made it out. The other side was from having these friends because human beings have to have someone to fight for. There has to yeah. be something like that. Yeah. And it's that simple thing that overcomes the enemy here. The simple thing right. of having friends and realizing yeah. I can't just leave them. Right. Yeah. What kind of person would I be? What would Gandalf say if I told him I, I left, you know, maybe he'd say there's nothing I could do. He knows that that's a lie and he, yeah. he evaluates and sees it. Yeah. I think that's really good stuff. I definitely didn't think of going there, but mm-hmm. you spurred me on. I yeah. saw it there. It's really good. <laughs> yeah. Um, Anything else on Bombadil you want to do before we go? I think it's pretty emphatic that, you know, he's, yeah. He's definitely, he definitely is about creation, eternality. Yeah. He's, yeah. he has complete mastery. Like, like you said, he, he sings the song and the white is just banished, gone. Mm-hmm. But I think in Tom's world view, it's probably better that anything inhabits this land instead of nothing. There's no reason to banish them until somebody right. wants to come and re resettle and grow sheep and, you know, right. make it beautiful again. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't think I have anything else. I, whatever, whatever thought that was in there for a minute, it, <laughs> it's been banished like the white. <laughs> well, I, I don't want to be a chowderhead or anything, but there's one more thing I, I had about Bombadil and it, okay. and it shows. So I had earlier said that all the treasures were ugly, cold, pale, not attractive. But when, mm. when Tom, banishes the white he empties out the barrow takes all the treasures out of it and he lays it all on the hill and says hey anybody who comes by can get it you know free gold for anyone who's gonna be wandering through the barrow downs Uh just not super likely but he takes something for himself and i think i think it's interesting because he he takes something for goldberry that's a that's a jewel and he says that he remembers the person the the woman who wore it Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of speculation that that would be like the prince's wife or something along those lines. I don't yeah. think that matters. But what does matter is this idea that not only has Bombadil banished this evil spirit who had done really unredeemable. He was about to destroy the ring bearer and therefore the world because Bombadil knows what the ring is. Yeah. But he takes that what was ugly and reclaims it, but not for himself, for the one he loves. It's mm-hmm. He takes a beautiful jewel and then he gives four gifts 
and he gives it to the people who need them. He gives them these swords. They're really knives, but swords that were made for the men of Westerness or Numenor. And they have these really magical properties to them because they were made by these smiths and they're still sharp right. after being in these tombs for, you know, at, at the bare minimum, like 1500 years. Right. You know, yeah. get your mind around that. And they're still razor sharp, yeah. which means they're, mag- <laughs> they're, they're magical blades. Right. And, and so Tom brings those out and gives them because he knows what's coming. He always, he always knows what's coming, mm-hmm. but he also always knows that, we look in the past to understand how we live through the future. Yeah. Really cool thing about him there that yeah. is kind of a throwaway in a way. Yeah. I I remember, actually now remember what my other thought was. And it's it's pretty tangential. Uh, so, <laughs> but it, nice. Well, that's good. We're, we're, yeah, we're winding it up here, so it's time yeah. to start doing that. Yeah, this this was the time for it anyway. So uh, it all worked out. Um, it, it actually had to do with when I was kind of thinking about Tom and the songs of, right. He, he essentially has a song for everything. And I just, I think a lot about how like the race that sings the most in the story is the elves, Um, you know, and, and, and in many cases, their songs are, are melancholy as their cares kind of overtake them, you know, before they leave. But Mm -hmm. I I do think, I don't know. I found it interesting to, again, that, that Frodo, the elf friend, is the one who, you know, comes to and and sings the song, um, mm-hmm. and who does? I mean, who does have the? You know, he's an elf friend because he he can see in a in a very small level. He he can see some of the songs that are beautiful, right? He knew a verse of the song for Goldberry that wasn't given to him, mm-hmm. you know, and so. I don't know. It was just a little, I don't, a little nugget for me, like to tie that elf friend piece back together with Frodo. Is it like he's really close? Like that's why he's so powerful in a, in a way is because he's he's really close to singing the beauty of the created things that the mm-hmm. the music that created all things is is there, and he's he's really close to grasping it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think others, you know, he's he's carrying the One Ring around, and what we're going to see is that pretty much every other mortal being would have already succumbed by the time we get, and, and it's just going to intensify, you know, yeah. as the witch King weaves his way terrifyingly back into the story again in a few chapters that Frodo, Frodo really is extraordinarily resilient. And I, I think there are hints all through that it is because of his, his connection with the, the greater world, with the created things, with his harmony, you know, understanding mm-hmm in a way like to steal kind of Lewis's phrase, understanding the deeper magic, yeah. you know, the, the way the world was formed. I'm, I'm queued up so I can do it, but do you have a, do you have like a, a quote, a favorite quote from this chapter you like? I, I actually didn't, I didn't note one, which is interesting because I'm always looking for one. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I, I really like this one. It's from Tom. I think this is like, this is Tom Bombadil. So great. So they're, Sam's looking around. They don't have any clothes. They're, so they're when they get pulled out of the out of the barrow, they're all naked and you know they want some clothes. And Tom says, "You won't find your clothes again," said Tom, bounding down from the mound and laughing as he danced around them in the sunlight. Just just middle picture there. Uh-huh. <laughs> these these naked Frodo's, uh, naked hobbits, and 
Tom's dancing around him. Says one would have thought that nothing dangerous or dreadful had happened, and indeed the horror faded out of their hearts as they looked at him and saw the merry glint in his eye. What do you mean? asked Pippin, looking at him half puzzled and half amused. Why not? But Tom shook his head, saying, You found yourselves again out of the deep water. Clothes are but little loss if you escape from drowning. Be glad, my merry friends, and let the warm sunlight heat now heart and limb. Cast off mm. the cold rags. Yeah. Isn't there something there about like throwing off your grave clothes? Like, yeah. Jump into yeah. light. And as if nothing dreadful or horrible had happened, nothing dreadful or horrible had happened to Tom because yeah. he's. He's transcended above that stuff. He's way outside of that. Yeah, I I love that because I think it just it just perfectly encapsulates who he is and how how often he's missed and misunderstood in the story. So I wanted to really give him his due, and you know I think we've we've bled a lot of words about him, and rightfully so. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you have good. a uh, you have a thought to roam with this time? Yeah, I mean I think I think the the thought to roam with is um, really is the, is the juxtaposition of um, the good and the evil is that um, those, you know, those that are like, as, as we're seeking righteousness that like that we shouldn't be, I, I think we're, we're constantly tempted to, to the uncreation to uncreate things in, in haste. And I think that's the big, that's the big key is that like Sauron's, desolation is in his haste to destroy things right tom is really patient we're going to see all of our wise righteous characters are really patient and so the juxtaposition for for us at least to me is is like in times of temptation to be destructive you know is to be patient and to know that like you know that all things get sanctified to the glory of the Lord. And so, you know, that like, that's kind of what I see is the main focus of the chapter and, and really like, it just stood out really heavily to me. I think it did to both of us, mm-hmm. but, but that was the thing that like kind of walk away from fog on the barrow downs with. Yeah. I think, I think that is the main point. I think, so I'll go, I'll go a little bit more tangential. That it's a good thing for me to remember as a guy who, you know, I, probably talk too much and try to, you know, kind of get out in front of my skis sometimes. And I think a good reminder in that greater battle of like that good does overcome evil, that it often does it in the way that you don't think that, you know, Christ came and he didn't lay, make the ground red with the blood of his enemies. He made it blood, the, the ground red with his own blood so that he could save a people. I think similar in that is remembering that we don't, fight against we do have to fight against evil but we don't fight against evil with carnal weapons you know frodo's carnal weapon would be to put on the one ring and try to Mm -hmm. beat bad beat evil with evil essentially and i think we can be tempted to do that to beat evil by reviling by cursing it by trying to use their own weapons against them hey they lied about us so it's good for we can go ahead and lie about them and that's something that Tolkien obviously didn't hold with Frodo doesn't hold with and Frodo is instantly rewarded by his courage. And so I think it, for us, it's good to remember that we've been given greater tools. We don't have to do evil, but we can trust in the one who created everything and we can trust in him to have the power. So that would be my thought to roam with. That's good. Well, so it's next time we're back on the main trail because what Tom did is he, he leaves them on the road. And so it's time to uh, go see about 
what's going on in Bree next time. So we hope that you uh, join us then as we meet interesting and strange new characters. All right. Until then, take care of yourself. 